0: What a blessing that was. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We have been looking at the trial of Jesus, working our way through John's eyewitness account, John's inspired account. We will refer occasionally to the other gospel accounts, but we're really focusing primarily upon John's account. And we know that John emphasizes that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king Of the Jews, yes, but he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah king, the anointed one. So we'll see John emphasizing that even as Jesus and Pilate are involved in this back and forth a little bit. We see that Pilate is caught up with the fact that Jesus is a king. And he is trying to get his mind around This truth, what kind of a king Jesus is, who is he, is he trying to rebel against King Caesar, the emperor, the Roman emperor, is he trying to take his spot as a Roman governor, we see that that will all be on Pilate's mind as we work our way through this trial, once again, for sake of review, this is one trial, yes, but there are two parts, there's a Jewish part and there is a Roman part to the trial, Within the Jewish part, John is the only writer of the gospel accounts to record the back and forth between Jesus and Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest, who is also referred to as the high priest, or high priest emeritus, Annas, really holds the power. He has the influence, he really is the one who has the authority, but his Son in law, Caiaphas, is the office holder of the high priest. So we have already looked at John 18, verses 12 through 14. We spent some time last week looking at the details of Christ's appearance before Annas, and then Annas sends him to Caiaphas. And John does not give us all the details of that part of the trial, that part of the Jewish trial where Jesus appears before Caiaphas. He doesn't give us a lot of the details. He just mentions that he goes to Caiaphas there in John 18 and verse 24. Matthew 26, 57 through 68, give us the details of that part of the trial before Caiaphas, and also included in that part of the trial is the Sanhedrin. And we spent some time looking at the Sanhedrin last week. This group, this Jewish religious Supreme Court, so to speak, of 71 members The president, the overseer, the chairman, was the high priest, Caiaphas, and the high priest could be appointed by the Romans or demoted by the Romans, and that was part of the rub against the Roman rule, is that they would have say-so even with the high priest. And also, the Romans would then determine if the Sanhedrin approved of a capital crime, if they approved of and voted for a person to be put to death for some sort of religious law that had been violated among the Mosaic laws, were certain, mosaic, in, the law, in the Mosaic law, there were certain crimes, if I can use the word violations of the Mosaic law, that under the theocracy before the king's, David and Saul, in the theocracy, when God gave the Mosaic Law, there were certain violations of that law that the punishment, the consequence, was capital punishment, death. That person was to be executed, and the way in which the Jews would execute someone was by stoning. Now, we know that that was not consistently enforced as the Children of Israel got into the promised land and we know about the book of Judges and every man doing what is right in his own eyes. And we get into the monarchy as the Jews no longer wanted there to be a theocracy and direct rule from God. Then God allowed for there to be government. And that means a monarchy and that means Saul and David and Solomon and on through the different Monarchs, and then, of course, the split of the the kingdom, so in all of that, there was not a consistent enforcement of capital crimes, but there were times where the Sanhedrin would meet, and they would vote for someone to be put to death and at that point, they had to convince the Romans because the Romans would really be the ones to determine whether the sanhedrin could follow through with that capital punishment. So again, that sets the background for this. So Jesus has appeared before Annas. There have been illegalities. There have been violations of the rules of trials as Jesus met before Annas. And as Annas questioned Jesus and Jesus replied, it became obvious that Annas was not keeping the rules of the trial, the fact that they were even meeting at night, the fact that witnesses hadn't been called. We, we dealt with that last week. And then Jesus is sent to Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin. And they then vote to have Jesus put to death for blasphemy. Of course, this was a trumped-up charge. This was a charge that was Accused or that was put against Christ based on false witnesses. Based on the testimony of those who hated Christ. Again, not done in a fair way, not done justly. The Sanhedrin then votes to have Jesus put to death, but they have to send him to Pilate. One, we know that that would be a fulfillment of prophecy because Jesus said, That his death would be that of crucifixion and not a single one of his bones would be broken. We know from an Old Testament prophecy in stoning bones would often be broken. Crucifixion there was not. So it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Also, the Jews needed the Romans to approve of this execution. And then thirdly, they wanted it to not all be on their hands Because they knew that they were charging Jesus with capital crimes against the religious law that were false. They knew that they had lied, that they had brought in false witnesses. They knew that Jesus was an innocent man, but they hated him. And they wanted him put to death. And so they wanted the Romans also to be held liable for Jesus' death. Now again... It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. There has been arguments through the years as to whether the Jews or whether the Romans. There have even been saints of the past, true believers, theologians, scholars, who have been very cruel toward the Jews because they had rejected Christ and they blamed them for Jesus' death. But it was the Romans, it was the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, who put Jesus to death. And it was our sin that put him there. So we all are responsible. We must not forget that. We must remember that though there was the human element of Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas and the Sanhedrin and the crowd, we are the ones Ultimately, who put him there because of our sin. So Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they send Jesus to Pilate now. And we got to this point down in verse 28 of John 18 last week. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So they wanted to be ceremonial clean. They wanted to follow the ritual of the ceremonial law and not go into the praetorium, into the judgment hall where Pilate, the Gentile, was holding this trial of Jesus. They would not go into Pilate's headquarters where he was going to... Question Jesus because they did not want to be ceremonially unclean and then not be able to eat the Passover meal that evening, that Friday evening. So they're so concerned about keeping the ceremonial law, but they have no concern for the moral law of God. They are committing a immoral act, an illegal, unjust act. This is the greatest violation of justice that has ever occurred in all of human history. And it was committed against the Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. But they were concerned that they were going to break one of their man-made traditions and become ceremonially unclean if they walked into Pilate's judgment hall. Verse 29, Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? Pilate wants to know, okay, the Sanhedrin has voted. They've now sent Jesus to him. Jesus is going to appear before Pilate. He wants to hear the accusations. Now, I didn't dwell a lot on this last week, but the accusations are listed in Luke 23 and verse number 2. The accusations that they gave to Pilate were perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes or give tribute to Caesar, and thirdly, for Jesus calling himself Christ, the king. Those are the three accusations. Those are the three charges that they presented to Pilate. We can read those in Luke 23 in verse number 2. But they say here, in verse 30, they answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, factor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. So they're saying, Pilate, trust us. This man is an evildoer. Would we have brought him to you At night, in violation of our own rules of trials, that we don't have a trial at night. Would we bring him if we did not have some reason against him? Again, trumped up charges. We know that Jesus was not a tax evader. We know that he had not led any kind of insurrection. And he was not trying to overthrow Caesar. Though he was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But Pilate ultimately didn't want to deal with Jesus. He knew that he had an innocent man, but he was caught between a rock and a hard place because Pilate was a political pawn. Pilate was wanting to appease the Romans and also appease the Jews at the same time. If he allowed the Jews to get out of sorts and to cause some sort of uprising, then the Romans would say, hey, Pilate, what kind of a ruler are you? Get those Jews under control, or else we're going to find somebody else to do your job. At the same time, Pilate wanted to be a good Roman governor, and in his political expediency, he wanted to make sure the Romans knew that he was doing a good job, and he was in control, and the Jews were going to follow his rules and his leadership, his oversight, his dominion. So Pilate found himself in a quandary, he found himself between a rock and a high place. The Sanhedrin, they wanted Jesus dead, but in a sense, they wanted Jesus' blood to be on Roman hands, and ultimately the Romans, they had to give the the authorization for Jesus to be put to death, for there to be a capital punishment. Verse 31, then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Speaking of the fact that he would be crucified, he would not be stoned, none of his bones would be broken. Verse 33, then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again. He had gone out to talk to the Sanhedrin, get the accusations He's questioning back and forth with them. He comes back into the judgment hall and he called Jesus verse 33 and said unto him, "Art thou the king of the Jews?" Now last week I mentioned three questions. Technically there are five. Three that are specifically addressed to Jesus and then the question, "What is truth?" That could be directed at Jesus or just a rhetorical question or just said. There's some debate. And then there's a follow-up question uh, here in verse 35. But we're going to break these down into three or four or five questions. And again, we looked at the first couple of questions last week. Verse 33. Are thou the king of the Jews? Again, this is heavy on Pilate's mind. How can he get Jesus into a... Roman authorized execution how can he get him into that place where he can authorize in the Romans the Roman government the Roman rule would approve through his decision to execute Jesus how could he appease the Romans and, and there truly be a cause for this execution at the same time how could he appease the Jews who wanted Jesus dead, who are now rabid, who are now maniacal and diabolical in their desire to have Jesus put to death. And we know what happens when there's a mob. We know what happens when there's mob rule. And there are people who will do dumb things, criminal things, wicked things, just because there's a whole bunch of other people doing it. We've seen that even right here in the United States. I remember in Africa and there would be times where the missionaries would say if there was a thief who was caught because there was such a lack of police and a good criminal justice system, many times the people of the neighborhood would take justice into their hands and there would be vigilante justice. And if they caught the thief, people from the neighborhood would come out of their houses and they would literally beat the person to a bloody pulp. Now, there are times where we wish that would happen in the United States when there's not justice served. But I don't think that's what we want as a regular part of our service of justice. It's just mobs going out and beating people up in the streets for every little accusation. We're thankful for a criminal justice system that I mentioned last week is closely patterned after the biblical principles of the Mosaic law. And we are thankful for... Even though we have our issues with our justice system, and as our justice system, as our nation, I should say, has gotten away from God and gotten away from the word of God, our justice system has had fewer fairness in in their trials, less justice being served because God's standard has not been looked upon properly. We have seen that in our own nation, but still we are thankful for the justice system that we have. Here, the Sanhedrin, the Romans... They are violating some of their own principles. And we see Pilate in this quandary of how do I determine if, that, if this person is a king and how do I execute a king? The Romans be okay with that and the Jews be okay with that. How do I get myself out of this quandary? So then we come down, verse 34, Jesus answered Pilate's question. We looked at this last week. Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Again, what is Jesus saying? Publicly, Jesus had already gone out and preached and taught in the public eye. He had been there even in the Passover feast in Jerusalem, teaching and ministering openly, before he went up into the upper room with the disciples to celebrate that last Passover with his apostles, with his disciples. Jesus had been very open, very public with his ministry. He says to Pilate, get the witnesses. Take this trial. If you know, Pilate, if you don't know, excuse me, Pilate, then there are plenty of people out there who would know. Bring them here. Of course, he is In turn, flipping the script on Pilate and getting Pilate to come to grips with the truth. Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? He is saying to Jesus, I'm not a Jew. You think that I've been involved with all of the Sanhedrin's and the religious leaders' dealings with Jesus? Have I? Am I a part of this religious system of the Mosaic Law and the Jewish practice, Judaism? Am I a part of that? Pilate is saying, "I'm not a part of that. I don't. I don't get myself busy with these matters. I just deal with them when they rise to the level that they're going to cause a problem in, in the the." the in the neighborhood, in society, in the city, and, and if there's going to be some sort of uprising or mutiny, insurrection, then, then I'm forced to deal with it. But I don't get involved in all these religious matters of the Jews. Thy no nation, verse 35, and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? That's the second question. I know there's another one in between there, but that's kind of a follow-up. So we're going to focus on this question in verse 35, what hast thou done? And we looked at this last week. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then when my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Once again, Jesus explained that his kingdom is not of this world. For if it were, there would have been a, there would have been a fight to keep him from being arrested. As a matter of fact, when, when Peter cut off the servant's ear, Jesus put the ear back on the servant's. It was clear that Jesus was not inciting some sort of insurrection. There was not some sort of fight. Now, if there had been, surely Pilate would have heard about the battle, would have heard about the turmoil in the city, in the streets, or wherever that would have taken place. He would have known about it by now had there been one. There obviously hadn't been. Jesus had gone peacefully. Again, what had Jesus said? He said that you have no power... The power that you have has been given to you by God. I have power to lay down my life and power to take it up again. Jesus was willingly allowing them to take him. Of their own sin, of their own sinful hearts, of their own sinful actions, Jesus was submitting to the will of God and was allowing them to take him. As a criminal, though he was innocent, though he was perfect in every way. So, Pilate didn't understand the significance of what Christ had just said, did he? So, again, he questions him about his kingship down in verse 37. Art thou a king then? Pilate's really dealing with this, really struggling with this. Different reasons, different ways in which we can look at it. Pilate was obviously a man of some sort of conscience. And he's a man of political expediency. He's a man looking for a way to appease both sides. But he knows he has an innocent man before him. What is he going to do? Do we ever find ourselves in those situations? Where we have a situation, a predicament, a challenge. Where we have to make the right decision and we know what the right thing to do is. But we have pressure From maybe two different sides. We ever get in those situations and we have to make a decision based on command, based on principle, based on truth. And it can sometimes be the hardest thing that we do. Sometimes it's as a parent with our child. And it's a hard choice. But we have to make, there's other people, especially the world, ah. You might hurt their self-esteem. They may not like you. They may not be your friend. My dad would tell me growing up, I'm not your friend. He said, now I want to be your friend one day. (laughs) But I knew what he meant when he said, I am not your friend. Now, my dad loved me. My dad was my friend. But he was making a point that I have to do this. I have to issue this consequence because I love you, because I want you to grow up to serve the Lord, to do what's right. And right now, it doesn't seem good for you, but it is the best thing for you. And even though the world says one thing, and there's another crowd, even sometimes among Christians, oh, you're being too hard, you're being too harsh. And the world's saying, oh, just let them live out their whatever, their authentic self. And now we see where that has gone. Sometimes that time of testing is at work, where you have the pressure from the boss, or you have the pressure from the coworkers. And there's a temptation to compromise. Are we going to make the decision to live by principle, by the truth of the Word of God, by the commands and the promises and the principles of God's Word? Jesus answered Pilate with truth My kingdom is not of this world. We dealt with that last week. The kingdom of God is entered by the new birth. Colossians 1 and verse 13. John 3 and verse number 3 where Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Pilate was ultimately the one on trial. Because Pilate was not in the kingdom of God. And Jesus was confronting him with the truth regarding his kingdom. He needed the new birth. We talked last week about the kingdom of God being advanced by the gospel, by the righteousness of God's people. Romans 14 and verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So we come down to verse 37, really a follow up from the previous question. Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Christ explained that his mission was to bear witness of the truth. Christ didn't say, My mission is to have a political overthrow of the Roman government and to establish a Jewish kingdom. That's not what he said. He said, I have come... He said, yes, okay, thou sayest that I am a king. He did not deny that because he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. Would Jesus one day rule as king on the earth? Yes, the millennial kingdom. We look forward to that day. We've spent time in our series on prophecy looking forward. Very specifically at the millennial kingdom. There is a time where Jesus will establish a literal 1,000 year reign on this earth. And then there is the eternal kingdom. So he is a king. And yes, there will be a literal physical kingdom on earth. And there will be an eternal kingdom. But Jesus is saying, I did not come to start a political uprising, an insurrection, an overthrow. And establish a political empire and establish the Jews as the keepers of the kingdom. He said, my mission is to bear witness of the truth. And those who know the truth hear his voice. What was the problem with Pilate? Why was he not hearing? Because he did not believe. Because he was suppressing the truth. He would not submit to the truth. He would not acknowledge the truth. He would not obey the truth. He is faced with it. The conviction is there. He's in this quandary. You can almost sense. Pilate is squirming. What do I do? He's faced literally with the living truth. Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Pilate is literally looking at the truth. He is hearing the literal truth, the truth of God. Christ is truth. Those that know him live in truth. And that's one of the distinctions between the saved and the unsaved. We've already looked at in our series in Sunday School... In the last few months, we've looked at the fact that in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, that those who have the Spirit of God, they, they understand things differently. They see things differently. There's a spiritual discernment that's given to believers because they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. That's one of the distinctions between a saved person and an unsaved person. One of the evidences of our salvation is that we see the world differently. We see things differently. There is a spiritual sight. Now, some of us are at different levels or degrees of that spiritual sight and discernment. And we've talked about the need for not just having the milk of the word, but the meat of the word. We've talked about children in the faith, immature believers who are tossed by every wind of doctrine. So we're to constantly be growing and developing and adding to our faith. And our sanctification, our progressive sanctification is at different stages and levels of development. And I understand that. But there ought to be some measure or degree of growth going on of response to the truth when a person has no desire to be with God's people is more in tune with the world and its music and its entertainment and its language and its devices and its actions and its sins if someone is more in tune with that than they are with the word of God with Christ then that's an evidence that that person is not truly born again Pilate needed to respond to the conviction with repentance and faith. He's the one, ultimately, that's on trial. So Jesus confronts him with the truth. And then verse 38, whether we want to call it the third, the fourth, or the fifth question, and technically it's the fifth in this passage, Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? And we can hear that question echo through all of the ages. And there are people right now on the Internet who are asking that very same question. And they think that they are smarter than God. And they have degrees. They have more letters after their name than the alphabet has. And they're so smart. They publish Articles on the internet and on magazines and the periodicals, and they think that they are the true authority when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God and the Bible. And they are self-deceived. Jesus said, come unto me. Those who hear my voice give evidence to having submitted to the truth, to having received me as their savior. That's the point of conviction that Pilate was at, and he asks the question, what is truth? All kinds of debates about what Pilate, how he said it, what he meant by that. Was it said from conviction? Was it said sarcastically? In the context, I think that Pilate was under conviction. He was in a quandary. He had an innocent man before him who he knew had authority, who was speaking words that he had probably never heard before. You think about how many times Pilate had to hold trial over a criminal, over some person who had involved, been involved in some crime, or maybe the Sanhedrin had brought somebody before. And Pilate was used to the response of a criminal of an insurrectionist, of some religious zealots who would be declaring their innocence, who would be arguing for another trial, who would maybe be cursing his name and cursing wildly and fighting and resisting the handcuffs or the whatever was tying, tying them up. But Jesus answered with calmness, with compassion, with love. With authority. He could see his innocence. And I just sensed that Pilate was under conviction. And he asked this question, what is truth? Truth to Pilate was pragmatism, was what was utilitarian, what worked for him, what was the most politically expedient or useful thing for him right then and there that would benefit him and himself the most. Not too different than the culture we're living in now. What is truth? Truth today is whatever one decides for himself or herself. And I emphasize himself and herself. Because there is a distinct him and a distinct her. God created male and female. Male and female created he them. There is no such thing as transgenderism. I understand that people try to pretend that they are a different gender. But we know that God has made two distinct genders. Two distinct sexes, male and female. But now we have people who are trying to decide truth for themselves. I determine my own truth. You do you. We are not too removed in our own society from the book of Judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. Someone's truth today, like Pilate, Someone's truth today is what benefits me, what makes me feel good, what is right for me, what is the most expedient, pragmatic, utilitarian thing that gives me the most benefit. That's basically where we're at today, individual, expressive individualism. Someone's truth today does not even have to be tied to biological, physical, or scientific realities. Now imagine for a minute if we just denied the existence of gravity. Think about it. Planes would crash. Cars would crash. We couldn't function as a society if we denied the natural law of gravity. But mankind thinks that he can just deny the natural laws of morality and biology, and science, and get away with it? Man thinks that he can just deny the moral laws of God that are baked into the design and the order that God created this world in, and man thinks that he can just violate those laws, deny those laws, suppress those truths, and he can just get away with it? It'd be like trying to fly a plane and denying that gravity exists. Now, I don't know about you, I've had little kids, my own children, who sat in the high chair at the dinner table, ha 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 ha, pick it up, hand it back to them, smile, drop it again, ha ha ha. And we're trying to teach them the laws of gravity. Now, there's a lot of things going on in that little child's mind. They're learning facial expressions, reactions. Eventually, there's an obedience principle that comes into play. But that child learns real quick, right? Gravity exists. Now, they have to develop in that knowledge and that growth as they get older, and they climb ladders and go down slides and all that kind of thing. But we think that we can just simply deny God's laws Of morality, of right and wrong, of good and evil, and get away with it? Can't happen. Pilate's question brings to mind man's quest for truth through the ages. Hath God said, Genesis 3, the question of truth goes all the way back to the first sin of man? Hath God said, Ye shall not surely die? We can talk about rationalism, where man thinks he can discover the truth through his own reason and intellect. We can talk about modernism, which emphasizes skepticism and atheism, where man looks inside for answers and we see the outgrowth of self-expression and self-consciousness. And from that, the self-esteem movement and all that goes with it. There's secularism, where we can use our intelligence And our technology to manipulate the world and make life the way we want it. And there's nothing that man can't invent or do to control all of life and to make things eventually a utopian paradise. And man will bring peace and prosperity to all the world. That's where some people are at. They think that we are just in the next stage of evolution and we are in a progressive state of creativity and technology and invention. And if we can just advance morally, can I say immorally, the way we think we're advancing technologically, then we think that we will eventually reach the truth and we will make it all happen and there will be a utopian paradise which leads us to postmodernism postmodernism follows and also borrows from secularism rationalism modernism but postmodernism when we live literally in a post postmodern world now where there is no truth truth is unknowable subjectivity doubts where the best position to take is one of doubt. So, no absolutes. If you have an absolute, like we do, because of the word of God and our faith and trust and belief in the word of God, which is the absolute, authoritative, infallible word of God, then that makes us a target that makes us, the prudes, the ones who are holding back the progression and the evolution and the improvements, because no one really believes in an absolute anymore. The greatest position to hold is that of doubt. So now subjectivity reigns supreme over objectivity. There are no absolutes. Where experience trumps reason, where feelings trump facts, that's postmodernism. Which comes back to Pilate's question, what is truth? Can I make just a little side, little note here? There is a manuscript fragment, a fragment of papyrus that has been dated all the way back to before 100 A.D. A papyrus manuscript fragment was discovered. Through archaeology, archaeology, dates back all the way to before 100 A.D. It's the oldest existing known New Testament manuscript, and it has John 18:31 through 33, and John 18:37 and 38 on it. I just find that fascinating—a testimony to the truth of the Word of God, the preservation of the Word of God. We have the Word of God. We're not missing anything. There's nothing left out. We have the 66 books of the Bible, God's inspired word. We have the truth. Pilate was speaking to the truth. And we read in verse 38 And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. I can't help but think is Pilate trembling? Is Pilate shaking? As Pilate, as he says those words, does he not yes, he does, in the back of his mind. He knows that he is trying to find a compromise, because he has an innocent man and he doesn't know what to do, because he's trying to live out his truth, trying to make a judgment based on his truth. And he comes to verse 38. I find in him no fault at all, and then we know from the parallel accounts in the other Gospels that Pilate then tries to shift the blame, because he's got an innocent man. So who does Pilate send him to at this point? He sends him to Herod Antipas, who actually is in town. Herod Antipas is the Roman governor of Galilee, where Jesus was from, where Jesus grew up, because Nazareth is in northern Galilee. Palestine in the northern part of Galilee, and he finds out that Herod Antipas is in town as the Roman governors would come because of the Passover feast and all the festivities and so many people traveling to Jerusalem, and they want to be there again to show off who's really in charge, to watch what's going on, and to make sure they're there if they have to make any kind of big decisions, etc., etc., so he finds out Herod Antipas is just down the road, and he sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. Again, trying to shift the blame, trying to get somebody else to take responsibility for Jesus. And as I talked about this last week, this is what we do in our sin. We try to push off the blame. We don't take personal responsibility. We don't accept the truth and submit to it and deal with it. We try to push it off. We try to blame others. We try to say, oh, it's somebody else's fault. And I've been there. I've done that. And whenever I don't take responsibility for my sin, God makes sure. That I am dealt with. It's better to confess and forsake than it is to try to hide because God knows his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth, searching the hearts of man. Pilate sends him to Herod. We know in Luke 23 what happens there. In Luke 23, Herod then would eventually send Jesus back to Pilate, and that's where we get down to verse 39. But ye have a custom. So, as he comes back in the next phase of the Roman trial, he comes back to Pilate, and Pilate is still trying to get out of this predicament because he won't face the truth and do what's right. He comes to verse 39. We come to verse 39. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I re- release unto you the King of the Jews? There it is again, John emphasizing Jesus is King. From Pilate's own words, recorded accurately by the inspiration of God. Verse 40, then cried they all again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. We know from Luke 23 and verse 19, he was not just a robber. He was a murderer. They would rather have a bandit, a cruel, violent, murderous, Robber. They would rather have him released than Jesus. We'll come back, Lord willing, to John 19 and look at this last phase in the Roman trial of Pilate before Jesus, excuse me, before Pilate. Jesus Christ confronting Pilate. I hope that these truths will sink in as we... See the trial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it humble us once again and cause us to recognize it was my sin that put him there and that he is our substitute. We should be there on trial facing the judgment and we are declared guilty. We are a guilty sinner, but so thankful are we that we are justified by faith. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And turn from our sin and turn to him in saving faith. We are justified. We are declared not guilty. And the righteousness of Christ is declared, is imputed to our accounts. May we once again be brought to that remembrance and be truly thankful. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in humility and in awe, and we're struck, Lord, with the guilt of our sin. Lord, we are unworthy sinners. And yet, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, all of us, at some point, have been like Pilate. And Lord, we're thankful for those of us who are here today who are saved, who have trusted Christ as our Savior and turned from our sin. Lord, we know what it's like to be a pilot and fall into that conviction. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. We don't know the rest of the history with Pilate, but Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may today be the day of their salvation, where they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. We pray, Lord, you will do your work in our hearts as we sing this closing hymn in Jesus'